0: Good morning. Welcome to Sovereign Grace. We are a people who are under the Word of God. We're in Genesis 9. As we continue our series in Genesis, we want you to follow along with us in the Word of God. As we turn to Genesis 9, I do want you to know that as we do sequential exposition of the text and generally fairly slow sequential exposition of the text, I did not actually plan to land on Genesis 9, where we see some information about the institution of the family and the state. Just before elections. I just happened to fall out that way. Just by God's grace, I suppose. Here we are in God's providence. Genesis 9, we're going to read verses 1 through 7. Genesis 9, 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. and for your lifeblood i will require a reckoning from every beast i will require it and from man from his fellow man i will require a reckoning for the life of man whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for god made man in his own image and you be fruitful and multiply increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask the Lord for help in understanding and receiving his word as we ought. Father, we pray that this morning as we look at your word that you would, by your spirit, illumine our minds so that we hear the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ speaking to us. We know that your word is for your people in all times, in all places, that it is a blessing that we get to hear you speak. We pray that you would protect us from error, and that you would build us up in the truth so that we can honor you. We give thanks for the covenant with Noah and the preservation of mankind the means that you gave to the end of that preservation in the family and in the state, and the kindness you've shown to us so that you might bring about your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to save your people from their sins. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're considering again the blessed obligations that the Lord places on Noah and his sons. In the covenant that he makes with them. Now last week we looked at how commands or obligations could be a blessing. This morning I want to look specifically at what those blessed commands or obligations are. The commands that the Lord is giving to Noah and his sons are a blessing to them. And I want to look at what those commands are themselves in some detail. Now before we consider these commands I want to remind you just briefly that covenant obligations and covenant promises have a universal and particular aspect to them. What do I mean by that? They are universal, these promises to preserve the earth and these commands as the means of doing so. They are universal in that they bind and benefit all mankind. All men everywhere are bound and benefited by these. Because this covenant is a covenant that preserves all mankind. What I'm saying is that the promise in Noah's covenant and the commands in Noah's covenant not only bound all mankind then, but continue to bind and benefit all mankind now. How do we know that? Well, we can see that in as much as the Lord is not judging the whole world by way of a flood presently. We have the rainbow as the continued sign of that promise, which we'll look at next week. We can also see that that truth, in as much as the New Covenant Church, both Jew and Gentile, were still obligated to keep these commands by the Jerusalem Council. So in Acts 15, 19-29, as they said to the church there, that we cannot obligate the Gentiles to the Mosaic Covenant, for that covenant is abrogated they did come in and say we can obligate the Gentiles and the Jews to the Noahic covenant. And so we read that language in Acts 15, 19-29. So this promise and these commands are universal. Further, this promise of preservation and the commands added to it are particular. Are particular. What do I mean by that? They're particular in that the promise to preserve mankind is given so that God might save his people in Christ. The obligations are particular in that they are the means. They are the means by which the Lord preserves mankind. And you're going to say, well, that sounds universal, but let me press into that a bit more. These obligations are only experienced as a blessing in the truest sense. In the truest sense by those who believe in the Christ. Yes, unbelievers are benefited here. But they cannot truly know the blessing of that benefit, nor even of those commands. Children, you understand what I mean by universal in particular. If you're a young person, you understand this. When your parent or your teacher decides to postpone some chores for the whole family... For example, if a parent decides to postpone some chores for the whole family or your teacher decides to postpone a difficult assignment for the whole class for the sake of sort of bringing along one child or catching up one child, you all sort of gain a short break. You all benefit from that, don't you? The whole family or the whole class gets a little rest for the sake of helping one particular child. While the Lord is being patient with and preserving the whole world for the sake of sending his son to save his people. Even though everyone in the whole world is evil from his youth. Very clear in Genesis eight twenty one. The Lord is patient with us all and will not judge us with a flood again. He will not do so for the purpose that he might save us in Christ. But the whole world benefits from this promise and these commands. And what we want to do is see how the whole world benefits as we look at the commands that God has given. So with that in mind, let us consider the commands. And there are really two categories of commands we're going to look at today. First, the blessed command to produce life. To produce life and, if you will, exercise dominion over the earth. This reproduction of life has really with respect to the institution of the family. Second, we're going to look at the blessed command to preserve and protect life, to preserve and protect life, and we'll look at that in regard to the institution of the state. But the first one we're going to look at is the command to produce life, and really in Genesis 9, 1 through 3, and then in Genesis 7, and the second one to preserve and protect life in Genesis 9, 4 through 6. So let's look first at the command to produce life. What are the Blessed obligations here. Look at Genesis 9-1. And then we're going to look at Genesis 9-7. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, what I want you to notice here is we're going to look at verse 7. You're going to see an inclusio. I've told you guys what inclusio is before. It's a Hebrew literary device which brackets the text. Sort of tells you something about what's happening in that whole of the text. So verses 1 and 7 are bracketing this section. So look at verse 7. You'll see the repeat in Genesis 9 7. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So the first command here, and really the central focus here, is on having children and filling the earth with them. As a type of the second Adam, it's a type of the second Adam, not the second Adam, but as a type of the second Adam, Noah is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Just as Adam in Genesis 1.28 was commanded, God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So you're hearing that command again. He's to be a good vice-regent of God who fills the earth with God's image bearers, multiplies them in it, if you will, and then subdues it. Note that both Adam and Noah are given land, the whole of the earth, and offspring. They're to be fruitful, multiply, and fill it. And both Noah and Adam are to bless the world through that. God is blessing them to be a blessing to the world through that. That language, land and offspring and blessing, to the world, is going to come up again in Abraham. That's why I pointed out. Both Noah and Adam are to fill the land with children. Now, as I said already, the Noahic covenant is still in effect. This blessed obligation still remains with man. We are to still be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We might say that the first means, the first means by which God preserves mankind is through the institution of the family, through the institution of the family. But sadly in the West, we have begun to see the family, both marriage and childbearing, as some kind of burdensome curse and not as a blessing. The idea that the purpose of man and woman is to marry and produce children is now seen as restrictive and narrow and burdensome. In the sexual revolution, we overthrew the created reality that marriage, sex, and procreation are a package deal. They come together. They belong together. They're not supposed to be separated from one another. In the feminist movement, we overthrew the created reality that women find their primary vocation in the bearing and raising of children sadly in social settings i now hear moms who are stay-at-home moms i hear them say this in social setting so what do you do the mom is asked and i hear the mom sadly say well i'm just a stay-at-home mom almost sort of a bit ashamed a bit reticent is there any vocation more important in the secular sphere, if you will, any blessing greater than bearing and raising children. Any. Women, if the Lord has given you a husband and opened your womb and provided you the ability financially to stay home with your kids, then you ought to bless God for such a privilege and you ought to proudly announce such blessings to your friends. The hand, you know, in some sense that rocks the cradle, rules the world. And by the way, in a new study, just so you know, in a new study, the New York Times, no less, they did a study on how happy are women several decades after the feminist movement. New York Times, you know what they found? Less happy than they were prior to the feminist movement. To their own chagrin, I suppose. But the sexual revolution and the feminist movement have lied to us about our purpose. We become keen to rip apart marriage and sex and childbearing that we might indulge the desires of the flesh. That revolution has delivered to us pervasive sexual promiscuity, a rampant divorce culture, delayed marriage, and an aversion to childbearing. Further, it was naturally and inevitably... Inevitably, naturally and inevitably, followed by the LGBTQ movement, which has denied the basic complementarity of men and women, and which has coaxed us into denying the reality that stares us in the face. If I say a marriage is between a man and a woman, particularly if I hold elected office, and I say marriage is between a man and a woman because of their sexual complementarity and their ability naturally to reproduce, or if I say a biological man is in fact a biological man. Then people speak about that as courageous. What courage that man has. How is it courageous to say that man is a man? What has happened to us to say that marriage is between a man and a woman? Courage. No, natural, obvious Do you know that presently our population in the West is shrinking? In fact, because of delayed marriage and childbearing and birth control and abortion and all the rest, the replacement rate of Americans is below what is needed. Therefore, the American population is shrinking. As a population shrinks, a civilization literally begins to die. Do you understand that? You want to collect Social Security later? How are you going to do that if you don't have enough children to work to pay that bill. We have reordered our lives in accord with godless standards. That's what we've done. It is now paramount in our minds to put off marriage and childbearing or to eliminate any accidents so that we might pursue academic and career sense or frankly just for the pursuit of personal fulfillment. The sovereign individual is destroying the family and thus the society. We have one of our major political parties utterly committed to the aborting of babies. In the current election cycle, they have doubled down and spent all the remaining money to promote abortion as their stated purpose. I'm not just saying that. They stated that as their purpose. But sadly, both of our major political parties, both, are utterly committed to the sovereign individual. This can be seen in the fact that both parties are largely committed to the mores of the sexual revolution. Quick divorce, delayed marriage and childbearing, and the LGBTQ agenda all come together, folks. And if you don't think that happens in both parties, then you didn't listen to the last president prior to our current president, who said of himself, I am the most pro lgbtq president in american history and he's the conservative both parties are committed to the expressive individualism as carl truman has phrased it the expressive individualism that demands all others bow to the demands and claim defenses of the sovereign individual that's so because our culture is largely committed to the same All that ultimately matters, it seems, is what I want to do. And now, what I want to do is who I am. Thus, if you question my behaviors, then you are judgmentally questioning who I am. You are, therefore, abusive, judgmental, and you should not be tolerated. You're a danger. If you're that kind of teacher in the public schools, you're a danger to the kids. You should be silenced from being able to use the pronouns that correspond to their sex. If you don't believe that's true, you haven't read the policies of the districts in your own city. I was on the Kern High Board when we adopted that policy. I voted against it. It's right here. Teachers can be disciplined over that. In your own city. That was delivered to you by a conservative board, no less. Friends, Christ's church ought to be different. Ought to be different. We ought to love the notion that our young adults covenantally bind themselves in marriage. If the Lord provides then we do not want them to delay as long as possible opening themselves to sexual temptation and communicating to them the idea that worldly attainment is more important than the covenant of marriage or of the bearing of children or even of avoiding continual ongoing sexual temptation. We of all people ought to love seeing as many children born as the Lord is pleased to give. Children are a heritage from the Lord. They are a blessing, a reward. Sadly, our culture seems to think that a barren womb is a blessing rather than rightly recognizing that a barren womb is the devastatingly sad outcome of the curse. One more comment here. If the world does not want their babies, then we should be the first to say, give them to us we are more than happy to take them. And while the world has been given these blessed obligations, while the Lord has given them to Noah and his sons, I want you to see this typical new creation is tainted with the ominous reality of the curse. So look there. Not like Adam in the garden. There's an ominous reality of the curse. He tells them to be fruitful and multiply, but notice what he says in verse 2. The fear of you and the dread of you Shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. This is a kind of ominous version of subdue the earth and have dominion over the creatures, isn't it? Remember, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and exercise dominion over them. And then you see Adam in that station in the garden who is naming the animals and in harmony with them. Now we hear, after the curse because of the fall into sin, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The dread of you and the fear of you has been placed upon The animals, in one sense, it's a kindness of the Lord, if you will, to providentially strike the animals with the fear of us after the fall. So why is it a kindness of the Lord? Imagine how hard life would be if the animals had no fear of us. Children, can you imagine, kids, how scary it would be and difficult it would be if all the insects and birds and fish and land animals were not afraid of us? Every time you got in some stream, the fish came after you. Every time you walked outside, the birds started descending. You've seen that movie by Hitchcock maybe. It's frightening. I'm dating myself here significantly. Every time you saw the ants, they were charging you. Or the spiders, you guys could imagine. It'd be horrible. It'd be horrible. What if they never hit or avoided us? It's kind of the Lord that the creatures hide from you. That they're fearful of us post-fall. It's a kindness of him. Further, look at Genesis 9-3. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, that's a reference to Genesis 1, they were given all the green plants to eat, I give you everything. God is granting the provision of food. But again, there's an ominous echo of Genesis 1 here. It's an ominous echo, if you will, of Genesis 1. We are granted the eating of all that lives, not just plants, but animals too. That's in addition to what we read in Genesis 1. I do not know. By the way, I've been asked this. Were they eating animals prior to this? I have no idea. I don't know. The text Seems to indicate they were not, but it's not as clear as I would like to be so that I can just stand up and say, I know definitively what they were doing. What I want you to know that's clear is that this is, in in addition to Genesis 1, to make a point. It is to clearly tell you that there's been an ominous change in the relation between man and other creatures. That though we're to subdue the earth and rule over it, there's been a change. They now fear us and dread us, and we can now eat them. That contributes to their fear and dread, by the way, as you might imagine. And this gift of eating animals leads us into the next blessed obligation, the command to preserve and protect life. Look at Genesis 9, 4 through 6. So we have the command to produce life and, if you will, subdue the earth, and now the command to preserve and protect life, which comes right after the eating of animals on purpose. So look there, verse 4 through 6. Again, while these commands to preserve and protect life exist in the context of the curse that overshadows this typical new creation, this type of the actual new creation for which Noah would have been waiting, these commands are good. They're good. They come from a kind God who, if you will, graciously hems us in to what is good for us. These laws that restrain sinful behavior and commands retributive justice that punish sinful behavior are a blessing to fallen humanity, not a curse. Humanity is obligated to keep these laws and to execute retributive justice. These commands are given for our good. They're necessary because of the fall into sin, but they're given for our good. Let's consider the two examples given here. Verse 4 you do not eat animals with their life blood in them. Verse 4 but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. You are allowed to eat the animals. However, there is a prohibition here against eating the animals with their life blood still in them. It's a limitation on the eating of the animals. We see this actually quoted and commanded for the churches again in Acts 15. We're not to eat animals with their lifeblood in them. So the question is, what does that mean? What does that mean? Don't eat animals with lifeblood in them. Well, minimally, it means you're not to eat animals that are still alive. Minimally. It would be cool to cannibalize animals while they're living. And yes, there are peoples in the history of the world... Who have done this very thing? It was a kind of cruel luxury in some cultures to eat from the animal while it was still alive. And if you don't believe that man is capable of such cruelty, then you're fooling yourself about the condition of the human heart. The command is clear here you may kill and eat the animals, but you're forbidden. You're forbidden from being cruel to the animals. As Matthew Henry said, man must not be barbarous and cruel to the inferior creatures. They must be lords, but not tyrants. We have laws like that in our own country, don't we? We understand this. You can eat a cow, but you cannot torture it. Now, this restriction likely goes further than that. It likely means you're not to eat the animal before its blood is drained from it. This may be a prohibition against the pagan drinking of blood that we see in cultic ceremonies. Pagans would drain the blood from the animal as a part of their cultic worship and drink the blood. It's a way of saying the blood is where the life of the animal is found. Without getting too far into Leviticus here, the blood is where the life of the animal is found. Thus, that's off limits to you. Now let's look at the second example, the killing of man and retributive justice. Look at Verse 5, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. See, if an animal gores a man, that animal shall be dealt with accordingly. You'll see that, especially dealt with in Israel's law. You go read in Leviticus, the end of Exodus, and into Numbers, you're going to see Israel's law being applied to an animal that gores a man. It needs to be dealt with appropriately if it does. Right, Its life is required of it if it does. But that's in our own law too, not just in Israel's law. That's in our law, isn't it? If an animal turns on a human being, we put that animal down, don't we? Rightly so. Rightly so. Further, if a man murders another man, Then the principle of an eye for an eye reigns, if you will. This is Lex Talionis. What is to happen to the man who murders his neighbor? What's to happen to the man who murders his neighbor? From his fellow man I will require reckoning for the life of man, verse 6. For whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. This is commanding capital punishment for murderers. Now, the execution of this justice, please understand, this is not the job of the sovereign individual. It's not the job of the sovereign individual. This is not a command for vigilante justice. This is God giving the gift of the state. I know it's hard for us to believe the state can be a gift. We all have absorbed Ronald Reagan's speech when he said, what are the scariest words in the English language? I'm from the government, and I'm here to help. You guys remember that? We've all absorbed that to some degree, but we need to understand that the state is a blessed gift from the Lord to issue retributive justice. It's what it's given to. Just as God gives the institution of the family as the most basic of all social units, so the Lord gives us the institution of the state for our good. And if you think that I'm just making that up from Genesis 9, go to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. Clearly here in Romans, we are in the New Covenant. The New Covenant Church. Romans chapter 13. I want to look briefly at a text that was much abused during 2020 and just use it for the purpose that matters today. Verse 1, Romans 13 and verse 1. Let every person No fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Just stop there. The state has been given by God to bear the sword to punish wrongdoers. This is for our good. This is for our good. It's been given to us to punish wrongdoers. It's been instituted by God for that purpose. And if you want to not fear the state, then do well. And if you do poorly, then you should fear the state. You should fear the state. You understand that. If you're speeding and a police officer pulls up behind you and you're afraid, good instinct. You should be. You broke the law and he has a gun. And he's there to enforce that law. I I keep hearing, I'm afraid of the police. I keep telling people, that's not a problem. That's part of the point. The state is a terror to wrongdoers. It's to keep you in line, restrain evil. What's the reason that grounds capital punishment? For God made man in his image. For God made man in his image. To murder a man is not just an offense against man. It is an offense against God whose image man bears. Man uniquely, of all the creatures, uniquely bears the image of God. And thus swift justice for the murderer is the upholding of the value of life. God gave us the gift of capital punishment because God is pro-life. When the state fails to punish criminals... Then we begin to see the wheels of justice come off, and we see a rise in frustration among the populace, and we see the culture descend further into a kind of anarchy, and we see a rise of vigilante justice. And friends, the current socialist revolution that is afoot in our country, that is being taught to our children, is precisely that. When the state is unjust, it is a terror to us. When the state is just, it is a terror to evildoers. Thus, we pray for a just state. We pray for a just state, and by God's grace, we have the privilege. We, as Americans, have the privilege and responsibility of advocating for and voting for a just state. You know, in the Constitution, we, the people, gave certain limited powers to the government; it isn't. They didn't grant us anything. In our system of government, we granted certain limited powers to them. Therefore, who we elect and what they do, we bear responsibility for as well. The Lord is placing clear boundaries around the wickedness of the hearts of man by giving us a state with a sword to hem us in. And if a man wishes to threaten the sanctity of human life. Then that just state brings down the sword of God's wrath upon that man. And sends the message that no one else ought to go here. And when the state does that. then the state is a terror to evildoers. And a comfort to those who do well. When the state does not do its job. This causes our hearts to pulsate. With a thirst for vengeance, doesn't it? And vigilante style justice often follows that. It's why a weak justice system often leads a society into decay and chaos. And friends, our godless society has not only thrown off the family, we've thrown off the proper function of the state. Somehow the state has increasingly become a terror to hard-working and well-doing families and increasingly a comfort to wicked and lazy people. This ought not to be the order of things. But this is increasingly our present condition and it reflects our growingly godless culture which God has in his wrath turned over to our sins to a debased mind. Romans 18 and following. When we suppress the truth and unrighteousness and deny God and turn and serve the creation, what happens rather than the creator? What happens? We are turned over by God's wrath to our sin, to a debased mind. And if you don't think we've arrived under that status of God's wrath, then you're not paying attention to the fact that you're courageous when you say a man is a man. If we think we ought to have men in drag reading stories to children in first grade, we have been given over to a debased mind. That is the wrath of God on a godless culture. And we need to pray that the Lord in wrath will remember mercy toward us. That's my prayer for the elections on Tuesday. Lord, in your wrath, remember mercy. Restore the sanity that we seem to have lost. We are becoming increasingly like Nebuchadnezzar, like an animal that eats the grass, that has no rationality about it because our sin is decaying our minds. And I pray the Lord will restore to us some sanity. But Christians, even if the Lord does not show us mercy, even if the Lord does not show us mercy as a nation, we have reasons for great hope. First, we know the Lord will preserve the earth until his purpose of saving his people is complete. That's a reason for great hope. He makes no promises that a particular nation will be preserved. He promises that the earth will be preserved. That's a reason for great hope. Second, we know the Lord. We don't just know about the Lord as believers. We know the Lord. We don't know about him like a man knows the stats of an athlete. We actually know him. He is our father and our friend. And that's because we've been saved through faith in his son. And through his son, we've been brought near to him by the spirit. Now, if you don't know Jesus, then I want to clearly warn you the degrading of the culture that you now see due to the godlessness in our society is only a taste of the eternal wrath of God against you for your sins. All the loneliness and despair and darkness and suffering and pain that we experience now due to the curse is merely a faint echo of the torments of eternal hell. That just wrath awaits us due to our sin and rebellion against God. It awaits us. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus came and kept the commands of the law perfectly for you. Jesus kept the penalty of the law due to you. If you will, he swallowed hell for you on the cross. Jesus conquered Satan, sin, and death for you. If you trust in him, if you trust in him, and you repent of your sins, you will be saved. You will be saved. Finally, beloved, no matter what happens with California, or America, we rejoice. Why? For we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We have been saved from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. This is what we look forward to and long for and rejoice in. Thus, as we walk as children of that kingdom, we rejoice in our blessed obligations and in our blessed reward our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Let me pray. Father, we give thanks for your kindness to us in your son, the privilege we have of living in that age of the new covenant and the fulfillment of all the promises that you made in Genesis 3:15 and that we saw unfolded with ever-increasing clarity and glory throughout Scripture, met in the incarnate Lord, our Savior Jesus Christ. We give thanks that the Spirit has been poured out, and by faith in Christ, we are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. We've been saved and forgiven, adopted as your sons. Heirs, according to promise, co-heirs, With Christ we give thanks that you have sent gospel preachers even to us so that we've heard the good news of our salvation and that your spirit has given us life so that we see and hear and believe we glory in such grace the grace we find in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for those here who do not know Christ that you would be pleased to open their eyes to see the light of the good news of the glory of Christ and so be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.